part four of this lesson series going through the entire Bible in a year. And uh, today we are to the place where God starts to get down to business, uh, basically fulfilling the promise that he made to the snake. Uh, after Adam and Eve had uh, fallen for his temptation in the garden. And if you remember two weeks ago, the last thing that God says to the serpent is, I'm going to send a descendant of this woman's. And you will hurt him when you strike his heel, but in so doing, he will crush your head. And everything from that moment until when we get to Good Friday is going to march towards that one moment in time. And with Abraham, God sort of starts this process of creating a family that would eventually become a nation through whom he would send his son, through whom all of the nations on earth would be blessed. And Abraham is a fantastic example for us because I think every single one of us on a daily basis, sometimes on an hourly basis, we ask ourselves, how can I become the kind of person that can handle whatever life throws at me? That, that not only do I get through a day, but that I get through it with, with poise and confidence and strength and that I come at it from a position of stability and, and courage. And really the question there is, how do I become, how do I live a life of power? Now when we talk about that in church, we usually phrase it a little differently. We say, how can I become a powerful man or woman of faith? And there was this one guy in the history of the world who lived such a, such a life that was a picture of faith that his, according to the New Testament, his life became the definition of what a life of faith was supposed to look like. Now, he's not perfect. Far from it. He makes some huge mistakes in his life. But for the most part, the way that he lived was the way that God says, you look at this guy and you will know how to live a life of faith. So much so that not just one religion looks back to him and says, that's the father of the faithful, but three, all Christians, all Jews, and all Muslims look back at Abraham and say, he is the father of our faith, and he is the definition of what a life of faith is supposed to look like. And so we're going to spend the next two weeks looking at him, because if you understand Abraham and his life, and then really we're going to get to Moses in about a month. If you understand Moses and what happens through that whole process in his life, you've got a pretty good grip on what Jesus is going to do when he gets here in the New Testament. And for the next two weeks, we're going to focus in on the life of this guy, Abraham. But to really tell the whole story would take much longer than we've got. I mean, if you were going to read it, you'd have to start in Genesis 11, and you wouldn't be done until Genesis 25. He takes up most of the book of Genesis. But there are cliff notes on his life in the book of Hebrews. And uh, so that's what we're going to do. We're going to start out with the first part of what uh, Hebrews chapter 11 says about him this week. We will go to the second part next week. Uh, but this will give you an idea of who he was and what he has meant uh, to people of faith. And it starts in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. It was by faith that Abraham obeyed when God called him to leave home and go to another land that God would give him as his inheritance. He went without knowing where he was going, and even when he reached the land God promised him, he lived there by faith, for he was like a foreigner living in tents. Abraham was confidently looking forward to a city with eternal foundations, a city designed and built by God. Now, I think that last sentence there 
explains why Abraham was able to do something that not all of us are able to do. To live this life of faith and to, to, to live in the world, but to not let the world control every decision that you make. And I think the reason was is because he understood that the things that we see around us are not permanent. The things that we see around us are not stable. The things that we see around us, are they, they really don't have a foundation, even if they kind of seem to right now. Science has proven this, that even though this thing looks very solid, it's made up of atoms that are mostly air. And you look at it, you're like, how does that work? Because this seems incredibly solid. And this seems like there's a foundation there, right? The, this, this stage that I'm standing on seems like it has a foundation. But they don't. Eventually, you know, I mean, scientists discovered this too, that the world is moving from order to disorder. That's what entropy is, right? It's one of the laws of thermodynamics. Everything is breaking down. Everything is falling apart. There's no real foundation, physically speaking. The older I get, the more I start to realize just how true that is. That, that when I look at my, at my own life and my own body, I'm like, entropy is real, right? I mean, it, we, we are living examples of how things are just falling apart all around us. I, I'll never forget um, Judy's grandpa, uh, Grandpa Dick. A lot of you knew him. Uh, he went to church here until he was about 98. And uh, then he went, moved into the Pioneer home, and he died a couple years later, just a few days after his 100th birthday. But... I'll never forget, he was doing something, working pretty hard. I remember he was making me tired just watching him. And he got done and he sat down and he goes, whew, I'm not 80 anymore. <laughs> I was like, wow. I hope I can say that when I'm 90, you know? But there are no physical foundations. There just aren't. There's, there's really nothing that you can count on and stand on and, and think this isn't going to move. Intellectually, 100 years ago, there was a movement, they were kind of called secular humanists, right? They were, they were sort of a product of the Enlightenment, and they, they were enlightened, and they believed that human beings were inherently good for the most part. And that if we could just get rid of religion, which was the real problem in this world, and we could just, through human endeavor and reason and scientific research, if we could just get rid of all of the, 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 the religious underpinnings, and we could just focus on, on being human beings, well, then we could usher in the golden age. We could get rid of evil. We could just have almost paradise on earth. And so there were governments, entire governments, that dedicated themselves to this idea. And guys like Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin and Mao Zedong and the guy in, in Laos, I don't even remember his name, but whoever that was, they decided that they were going to get rid of all religion, and in so doing, get rid of evil and usher in the golden age. And in the name of that concept, some researchers believe that the, the four of them alone killed over 100 million people in the 20th century. More than, uh, sometimes some people say that's more than have been killed in the entire 20 centuries before that. We don't know that for sure. But it is a fascinating idea that it turns out the problem is not religion problem is us. We're the problem. And what's interesting to me is the people now, that religion is still under attack, but the people who attack religion now, the platform that they stand on, they look back at the platform of secular humanism from 100 years ago and they're like, those guys were idiots. Can you believe people actually thought that way? They were ridiculous. Now, 
us here now, now we know. Now we know what is going to really usher in the golden age and to make things good. But the problem is you can never say, now we know. Because in 100 years, those people are going to be looking back at us who said, now we know, and go, can you believe they believed that back then? Science, the same thing, right? I mean, you can't, you can't publish a textbook without having to, after you're done, stick in you know, sheets of paper that say, this isn't really true anymore. We have to make sure you know that we now know, now we know that this is wrong and this is how things really are. It, just, it happens within years in science. You could talk about relation, you know, relational foundations. It's like they, they fall apart. You can talk about psychological foundations. I mean, those of you who have had much time on this earth at all, when you look back at what you thought 10 years ago, you're like, I can't believe I thought that then. But now, now I know, right? I mean, we, we, we just, we, we believe that there is stability out there. And the only thing that keeps us from living the life of faith that Abraham lived is we look around and think the things that we are so, con so connected to, so controlled by that those are really that they have a foundation. And to the extent that you and I could, could see that there is no foundation there, to that extent we could live a similar life to Abraham's. Now, Abraham was not perfect, like I said, and we'll get into some of his mistakes as we go through this, but he did learn to live this life that sort of became sort of the poster life for Proverbs chapter 20, verse 24, where the Bible says, since the Lord is directing our steps, why try to understand everything that happens along the way? You know, Abraham didn't have a 10-year plan. Abraham didn't have a five-year plan. Basically, Abraham's plan was God would say, take this step, and Abraham would do this. And then God would say, now take this step. And most of the time, he did it. Now, we're going to look this week at two of the, I don't know if you call them challenges or tests or steps that God asks Abraham to take, what that means for us in our lives. And then next week, we'll look at the last two steps that God asks Abraham to take. But what we're going to see is that these, these challenges that God sends to Abraham, they become increasingly more difficult. Just like a physical workout, right? If you go and you work out at the gym, you can't start out with extremely heavy weights. It takes time. You have to start small, and then as you get stronger, the trainer starts throwing on extra weights. And you'll think, I can't handle that. And the trainer will say, yeah, you can. I'll help you when you really need the help. But yeah, you can handle this. And what happens to us? Well, when we work out really hard, we get sore. We hurt. But then as our muscles mend, as they heal, we're a little stronger after that. And that just kind of is the way that you get stronger and you're, you, know, you became, become you know, a weightlifter or whatever. Same thing spiritually speaking. Sometimes after these challenges that God sends us, we are sore. And we're exhausted and we wonder, why is he doing this to me? It's like he's making me stronger. And so what do these tests look like? Well, the first test in Abraham's life, I guess I'd call the location test. And the question that goes along with this test is where, right? Um, now, it's not always a geographic change of location. It was for Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, we read that the Lord had said to Abram, Leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. Now, that's the call of God in Abraham's life, right? But 
It's the same in all of our lives. Most of the time, he won't actually move you geographically. Most of the times, he will leave you right where you are, at least at first. And he will just change what you're doing where you are or how you're doing whatever you're doing where you are. But it all comes down to answering this call that God makes to every single one of us. He says, are you in? And if you say, yeah, I'm in, then what you are saying to God, whether you know it or not is, I'm going to let you set the pace of my life. I'm going to let you choose the direction of my life. I'm going to let you choose the pit stops where we stop. And then when it's time to go again, I will go and I'm going to let you set the final destination. That's what saying I'm in means for God. And that's what he says to Abram. Are you in? Because if you are, I'll do some amazing things in your life. But the, maybe the most amazing thing in this whole story is that Abram says, yes, I'm in. Because we don't know what kind of relationship Abram had with God before this, but we do know this. The way that the people of that part of the world at that time viewed the other gods that they worshipped in that region, they saw those gods as being mean and nasty and vindictive and doing everything that they could to prank and to, well, to harm people, to get them to, to fool them into doing things they shouldn't be doing. Sort of like this.
That's what people thought of the gods in that part of the world at that time, that the gods were like Jim Helper from The Office, right? Always trying to fool you, always trying to prank you. But for whatever reason, Abraham believes God. And we find out that in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 through 3, this is what he was staking his future on. God says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt, and all the families on earth will be blessed through you. And that's God's plan for Abram. It is his plan for the people of God that he would, that he would bring out of uh, Abram and uh, Sarah's family and eventually create a nation. And it is now his plan for each one of us that we would be blessed and that we would then be a blessing to others. Blessed to be a blessing. And as long as we, as long as we are a conduit for God's blessing and allow his blessings to flow in and to flow out, then God will continue to pour his blessings in. But whenever we decide we're going to try to hold on to and hoard what we've got because we might, you know, we, we might not have enough. And God shuts down the flow. And what's left, you know what happens to a pond if it doesn't have a source for the water to run out and run into? It becomes stagnant and gross and scummy. And the same thing will happen to us if we're not careful. So Abram hears that, and he says, I'm in. Genesis 12, verse 4. So Abram departed as the Lord had instructed, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he left. So that's the first uh, challenge, the location challenge, or at least for us, it might even be more of a, you know, just basically it's the call of God is about, are, are you in? And if you're in, then you're letting him set the pace, the direction, pit stops, and the destination. That's the first challenge. That's the first test. Second challenge or test is what I guess I'd call the timing test. And this one, the question that goes along with it is when. When will you do what I think you're supposed to do in my life? And if you've spent much time at all praying and asking God for anything in your life, you know he is very patient, and we are not. And we're like wondering, when are you going to do what I think you're supposed to be doing in my life? Now, if you've ever asked that question, you're in really good company, because Abram asked that question. Uh, he started to realize how late it was getting, right? God comes to him in Genesis chapter 15 and basically repeats what he said he's going to do. He's like, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. And all the nations on earth will be blessed through you. And you will have more descendants than you can count. And Abram looks at God. And this is what he says in uh, Genesis 15 verse 7. He says, O sovereign Lord, how can I be sure that I will actually possess it? And it's a great question. And all of us have that question. But what will happen if we're not careful is we'll decide, okay, I guess God is waiting for me to do something superhuman. I guess I need to jump out and do something to ensure that the plan of God in my life actually comes to pass. And when we do that, it ends up looking a lot like this, I think, from heaven.
And that's what Abraham and Sarah do, kind of. They start thinking, you know what? Our biological clocks are ticking. They, we are not getting any younger, and God isn't fulfilling the promise. So Sarah comes up with this plan. She says, here's what we'll do. You take my servant Hagar, and you make a baby with her, and then I'll sort of adopt that baby. But it's more than an adoption because, you know, really it's, it's basically like she's like the kid will be mine. And, and, and that will sort of ensure that the plan of God actually occurs in our lives. And that's what they do. And you've heard of mental gymnastics probably. Um, what Abraham and Sarah do is kind of like spiritual parkour, right? They're, they're, they're trying to do something superhuman to ensure that God's plan occurs because they are having a hard time trusting in his timing. And what ends up happening is Sarah's servant, Hagar, she has a baby that they named Ishmael. And the problem is that God's plan is not to do something that is humanly possible, but to do something that makes no sense at all, that people will say that that can't happen. And when they see it happen, they're like, how did you do this? And the only answer is through God. And so later on, when they're way beyond any possibility of ever having a baby, they have a baby. And Sarah names him Isaac. And what ends up happening is Isaac, the promise is fulfilled through him. And he becomes sort of the father of uh, the Israelite nation. Ishmael ends up getting kicked out of the camp. Um, and he becomes the father of what would later become the Arabs. And they, by the next generation, they are already starting to kill each other, go to war with each other, and it has not stopped to this very day, all because of one very bad decision to, to fix God's plan and to make sure that it happens on our timing, which must make a whole lot more sense than God's timing. And so, you know, if you've ever thought, I could never be like those heroes in the Bible that were perfect, that's one thing about the Bible. Every other ancient book that talks about their heroes, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, they could do no wrong. You never read about any problem they ever had, any mistake they ever made. But in the Bible, they do not erase out the flaws, the mistakes, the sins, the weaknesses of these biblical heroes. And I think the reason is because now we can look at them and be like, huh, okay, I guess you don't have to be perfect to be considered the father of the faithful. And so maybe there's hope for me in my life yet. And so when God comes to, to, to Abraham and says, I'm going to do this, Abraham. And he says, but how? How can I be sure? God does something remarkable with him at that moment. He enters into, well, he'd already entered into a covenant. But now he, he like, he acts out the ritual that everybody in the ancient world would have understood with Abraham. The way that a covenant works, and we're going to get much more deeply into this in about a month and a half when we get to the Ten Commandments in Mount Sinai. But the way that they worked was you would have this document, and it would always be entered into. It was an agreement between a much more powerful group or person or entity and a, a less powerful person. It would be entered into for the purposes usually of protection. And the covenant would always start out, it would say, this is who I am, this is what I've done, and this is what I will do for you. And then it would have the requirements of the lesser powerful 
person or group and say, here's what you have to do in order to live up to the, you know, to the, the requirements of this covenant. And then it would have listed, here's what will happen to you if you don't. And then when that was done, they would actually act out what was called the blood pact. They would slaughter a couple of animals, they would cut them in half, and they would create a pact that then the lesser powerful party would walk that path. And the imagery was obvious. If I break the terms of the covenant, this is what's going to happen to me. I'm going to be slaughtered. I'm going to be cut down. I'm going to be destroyed. And so God, in Genesis 15, walks through that entire process with, 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 with Abraham. You know, this is who I am. This is what I've done. This is what I'll do with you. Here's what I need you to do. Now, Abraham, I need you to slaughter the animals, create the blood path, and Abraham does. And then when he's getting ready to walk, Abraham, when he's getting ready to walk down the blood path, God stops him and says, no. And this is what happens in Genesis chapter 15, verse 17. After the sun went down and darkness fell, Abram saw a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the halves of the carcasses. So the Lord made a covenant with Abram on that day. Now, the, the fire pot and the torches, uh, or the torch and the fire pot, those were imagery of God. That it's used several other times in the Old Testament. Abram knew exactly what he was watching. He just would have been completely floored that instead of Abram walking the blood path, God walks the blood path. But what's he saying? What's he saying to Abram? Here's what he's saying. He's saying, Abram, I know that you will never and your descendants will never be able to live up to the terms of this covenant. And so here's my promise to you. When you guys fail to live up to the terms of this covenant, it is I that will walk the blood path for you and not you that will have to walk the blood path for me. And thousands of years later, on Good Friday, Jesus walked that blood path for us. It is that picture, that is another one that we've seen throughout these stories already in the Old Testament that are pointing right at Jesus. And it's really interesting. The night before he walked that path himself and was destroyed himself on our behalf, he, during the Last Supper, when he was instituting, instituting the Lord's Supper, he held up a cup of wine and he said, this cup is my blood and the new covenant poured out for you. I don't know if everybody that was there that day at that moment thought back to Genesis chapter 15 when God walked the blood path or not, but I guarantee you later on when they looked back, they did. And they shook their heads and said, what kind of God does that? What kind of God walks the blood path for us instead of, instead of punishing us for the things that, that should have rightfully fallen and it's that kind of God that Abraham believed in. And because of that, it gave him the trust to take the steps that God put in front of him. Not perfectly, not all the time, for the most part. And Abram's life was miraculous and beautiful and amazing because of it. Not absent of pain. There was a lot of trouble that he has in his life. But his life is one of the most amazing lives that has ever been lived. And it's all because he understood this concept of faith, which is take this next step. And now we look at that and we're like, take this next step. And we're like, but what's it going to lead to? And God's like, no, 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 no. You don't get to know that. 
when we take the net, when we, when we enter into this, when we say, I'm in, then he says, then you need to learn to live out Proverbs 20, verse 24. And that's what we're going to end with, kind of what we began with. Since the Lord is directing our steps, why try to understand everything that happens along the way? He puts the steps in front of us, we take them. Then he puts another step in front of us. And even when we think we know what it's going to lead to, usually we have no clue. But I will tell you this, after watching it unfold in my life, watching it unfold in many of your lives, I've learned this. We may not end up where we thought we'd end up, but wherever we end up when we take these steps that God lays in front of us, you wouldn't trade it for the world, for nothing. And that's God's promise. Now, these are the first two steps, the location test, the timing test. Next week, we're going to look at two increasingly more difficult tests that Abram faces. And if you think these ones today were hard, you haven't seen anything compared to what's coming next week. But for this week, I hope you'll make this your prayer. And I hope that you will say to God, show me what step you want me to take, and I'll do my best to take it. Knowing with confidence that even if I take the, even if I think this is where God wants me to go, and it wasn't, but I take that step, it is a whole lot easier for him to guide us back into the right path than it is for him to get us started when we are standing still and saying, I'm not moving. Get moving, ask him to show you the steps, and then with courage and confidence, take those steps. It'll change your life in just a week. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your servant, Abram, and for the fact that you did not erase his faults and his weaknesses, but that you left them right there for us to read about thousands and thousands of years later, right alongside with his successes. And so, Lord, help us to understand that. Help us to learn from it. Help us to, like Abram, take the steps that you put in front of us and to not worry so much about where they're going to lead, but to have the courage and the confidence in you to know that wherever it is, it's going to be someplace greater. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.